This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 27, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. We now know that President Trump is likely to be a big spender, at least with respect to the military. But how does your member of Congress stack up when it comes to voting for spending? Jonathan Bidlack with the Coalition to Reduce Spending discusses the group's new app that lets you drill down on how much spending your member of Congress supports. Grover Norquist has his famous pledge that he gets lawmakers at both the state and, and federal level to, to sign. And I, as I understand it, doesn't really push that hard. But a lot of lawmakers like to be seen as people who are uh, hawks when it comes to taxes. And uh, sometimes they're held to account for having signed that, signed that pledge. And you know what had been missing for a long time was the idea that, well, yeah, taxes are it's fine to pledge not to raise taxes, but if you can borrow money, that's not a very meaning. That's not necessarily a very meaningful pledge to make. So, the flip side of that, of course, is a pledge not to vote for more spending. And uh, so, tell us about the tool that you've developed. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, our our sort of signature organizational program has been an anti-spending pledge, and uh, you know, it's obviously uh, there are a lot of people who are less willing, I guess, to go on the record and say they're not going to vote for more spending. And so, we've always had this question of, you know, is there something that we can do to put everyone on an equal playing field and really see how much spending they're voting for? And so, you know, we had the idea to create sort of, a, I guess, you could think of it as a spending-only scorecard, where we take the estimates provided by the Congressional Budget Office and sum them up uh, and just sort of cross-reference them with uh, with the votes that everyone is taking. And so, uh, about two weeks ago now, we launched spendingtracker.org, which just uh, does just that. You can go on the site, punch in a zip code or enter in your state or, or district, and uh, and see sort of the ranking of how much spending every member of Congress, every every senator has uh, has voted for. So, you're, ta- you're using CBO data, which is not the best necessarily, but it's also Available. Yeah, there are a lot of critiques I think to be made of the CBO, but generally speaking, it's pretty objective, and I think people view it that way. And so, uh, you know, it's sort of a, the natural source. And obviously, CBO is is more so than anyone else looking at those bills that are going to have the biggest spending impact. So, what have you learned in the process of doing this? Obviously, app development is its own set of things yeah. that, that you learn. But in terms of what you've learned about members of Congress and their behavior when it comes to spending, what 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 have you culled? Yeah, there are a lot of things. Um, you know, I think in many ways, the results shake out in, in ways you might expect. You know, so the, the, the top member of the uh, of the House is Justin Amash. I think a lot of your listeners probably would, would not be too surprised to hear that. Um, but, you know, I think the first thing is that there are, you know, it, the if I, you had asked me that before this project, how much more does just uh, does say Nancy Pelosi vote to spend than Justin Amash? You wouldn't really have an answer to that question. We would sort of know, you know, yes, Nancy Pelosi's voting for more spending, but you wouldn't be able to say, well, actually, you know, she votes for about 258 times more spending, which is the actual number. Um, you know, there are a lot of other things too. I mean, you know, Walter Jones, for example, is number two, which uh, you know I think I would have expected Congressman Jones to be toward the top, but maybe not number two. Um, and I think when you look through the results, you'll see that it's actually not. You know, the spending that's being voted for isn't necessarily a partisan thing at all. You know, the best of the best tend to be Republicans, but the worst of the worst actually tended to be a lot of the establishment Republicans. And you'll sort of see the rankings go back and forth between chunks of Democrats, chunks of Republicans. And so uh, it's kind of fascinating. And to some degree, you know, you'd expect that when you're looking at the bills that are passed into law. Uh, you see that a little less when you look at all votes that they've taken. You know, you tend to see Republicans looking better because they voted, for example, for the Obamacare repeal, which would have saved. 
over and over and over again. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of these types of things that, uh, you know, I mean, again, from a libertarian standpoint, perhaps, you know, not as surprising to know that uh, that Republicans might look better across all votes than sort of that subset that were enacted into law. But So, that's the, that seems to be a pretty important distinction. That is, you can vote as a as a symbolic matter to cut spending, knowing that the president will never sign it into law, and you get the benefit of being tough. But uh, when push comes to shove, when your leadership really wants something, and they think it's got juice, well, we're seeing that now, I guess, with the difficulty of, of you know uh, passing an Obamacare repeal. And I think the other thing is that the the flip side is also true, right? You have a lot of members who vote for programs that they want to see to be able to say that they're on the record supporting this type of spending or this type of program that they know ultimately isn't going to get passed either. So it, it kind of works both ways. So in the in the House, you said uh, Justin Amash and Walter Jones were near the top. Who were some of the uh, the best? Uh, Democrats in the House uh, with respect to voting for enacted spending and why? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but generally, uh, the, the Democrats who ranked toward the top were those who didn't vote for substantially more military spending. So, you know, as you know, I mean, the the Pentagon budget, you know, represents about fifty five percent of the discretionary budget, which is generally what we're voting on. And so, um, the the Democrats who ranked toward the top are those who are sort of more skeptical of of increase military spending. And obviously, you have a lot of Republicans who, who are willing to vote for substantially more military spending. And so, when you're looking at those votes, you know that has a major impact on how this shakes out. And it's very interesting, because when you talk about the discretionary federal budget, uh, the other parts of the budget that are on autopilot, those do get votes. Yeah. So, actually, when, when CBO scores legislation, they actually break apart that impact into discretionary spending and mandatory spending. And so, even though a lot of this spending is on autopilot, uh, the, the, the votes that they do take do often have an impact on the entitlement portion of the budget. And so, if you go to spendingtracker.org and you pull up you know, someone's individual rep's page, you'll actually see a little chart that will show the breakdown of how much of the spending they voted for was discretionary versus how much of that is the, is the mandatory impact that CBO estimated. All right. So, in the Senate, who were the top uh, lawmakers in the Senate and uh, with respect to enacted spending yeah. uh, and and why so the Senate is actually really fascinating results and you know I should I should preface this by saying that you know we really didn't know how this was going to shake out when we sort of put this methodology together and and this um, is just for the last Congress that's right this is the 115th Congress uh, so 2015 and 2016 um, so if you look at the Senate uh, and you look at sort of all votes um, the number one person in the Senate is Rand Paul again probably not too surprising uh, when you look at the subset of, of you know bills that were actually passed into law, Rand is actually number two, uh, and number one, believe it or not, is Bernie Sanders. And uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. I guess if you if you that will make sense when you think about it. One is that you know he ran for president, he missed a lot of votes. Uh, Congressman uh, Senator Paul missed a couple of votes too, but uh, but but uh, Senator Sanders missed many more. Um, but the big factor too is that again, you know, on the things that are being passed into law, Senator Sanders is often kind of good, right? He doesn't vote for dramatically more Pentagon spending. He's usually pretty good on sort of crony cap. Capitalism type legislation, uh, and so while he may want to see you know dramatically more you know a massive expansion of say you know Medicare, Medicaid, or other entitlement programs, the fact is we're not voting on those, and we're not actually having those being enacted into law. And so the impact that he's actually having on a, in a practical sense uh, was actually pretty positive from a fiscally conservative standpoint in the last Congress. So who are I guess what are the big surprises here? Obviously Bernie Sanders coming in number one is surprising, but once you look into the the reasons, it's not all that surprising. What are some of the big surprises? surprises about people who ultimately maybe signal their intentions to be a spending hawk and don't actually 
end up being that way. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things. I mean, you know, if you look in the House, I mean, a, a lot of the top members tend to be Freedom Caucus members. So, you know, you see, in addition, in addition to, to Jones and Amash, you see, you know, Raul Labrador or Thomas Massey, for example. Um, you know, there are many members of the Freedom Caucus who are perhaps not as good, um, at least from from our standpoint. Um, so, you, you, that's sort of a, I, I think, a, a, you know, perhaps not too surprising, but I think people will sort of lump the Freedom Caucus together as everyone votes the same, but they actually don't. There's pretty significant variation. Uh, and then the, the biggest surprise is I sort of alluded to earlier is that you know you see this flipping back and forth where you know there are a lot of Democrats who vote together uh, and there are a lot of Republicans who vote together on various pieces of legislation and so they'll have very similar scores. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is that the, the distribution of spending across all members of Congress is not some sort of you know even distribution. It's actually weighted very heavily toward uh, toward high levels of spending. So you know according to CBO's estimates, President Obama you know signed into law just over two trillion dollars of new spending. The average Republican voted for something like 1.9 trillion of that, and the average Democrat did too. And so, uh, you know, you could have, you know, if you took someone who was who was maybe better than two thirds of all members in the House, they're still probably voting for, you know, 1.5, 1.6 trillion dollars in new spending. So, um, you new know, again, spending over 10 years, right, right. And so, and yeah, one of the cool things that the site lets you do is actually filter that down. You know, maybe you only care about in the next year, or the next three years, for example, instead of that 10 year window. Um, so you're sort of able to do that, and it doesn't really change the rankings very much. It, you know, it changes the the amounts of spending, but uh, but by and large, you know, the people who are sort of good in that ten year window are also good in that in that one or three year window as well. So, with respect to uh, the military budget, which we uh, referred to a little bit earlier, how much of that is set as you as you see it right now? We, we're, there's a there's a concern that there well, there's concern and a hope for people who care about reducing spending. The uh, Defense Department is, uh, for lack of a better term, a target-rich environment when it comes to spending reductions, and it's the kind of department that you can cut because it has been cut uh, following wars and uh, after the end of the Cold War. There were fairly dramatic reductions in military spending. So, what is the military budget looking like? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, so far my read is that the president has been kind of a mixed bag. So, you know, on the positive front, you've seen you know criticism, for example, of the F thirty five program, which everyone sort of knows has been you know long over budget and 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 been you know very slow to roll out. And so with, with multiple incarnations, right? And so costs in the uh, you know costs of the F thirty five have been coming down, and you know, and the president has sort of said that there may be some more competition between between Boeing and Lockheed, and maybe there's some you know replacing of F thirty fives with F 18s for example, it's hard to say, um, but at least those criticisms are sort of out there. It's pretty great to have you know the the president of the United States you know being very public about that. You know I don't think uh, many other Republicans and, and certainly not you know a potential President Clinton, uh, President Hillary Clinton you know would not have really been levying those criticisms. So that's encouraging. Uh, that said, you know Secretary Mattis has said that the top line numbers for uh, the Pentagon will be higher than what President Obama proposed, and I do think there's a little bit of conflating you know more military spending with a Stronger national defense, which is, you know, maybe true to some degree, but but you know, given the amount of waste that we often see in the Pentagon, uh, not not entirely true. Uh, so you know, from a fiscally conservative standpoint, that's perhaps you know uh, some disappointment that may be on the horizon. So auditing the Pentagon is something that people who care 
about reducing federal spending have cared about for a long time, and it's never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's one of the best things we could do, right? We should know where the money is being spent. Uh, I mean, frankly, we should know that about every uh, governmental department, but unfortunately, the, the Pentagon tends not to be as uh, as open to that. You know, I think we were talking beforehand that uh, you know the Pentagon actually commissioned a study to sort of see how much waste uh, they have available that they they have, and uh, and they identified you know massive amounts of waste within their own in their own study, and they sort of you know buried those results. I think it was about a month ago now. But uh, so I think even within the Pentagon, most people realize that um, you know they could be spending far more efficiently, and and uh, and that there is a lot of a lot of spending that could be cut. And there are a lot of people who style themselves as conservatives who view military spending as just a moral imperative, and they couch it within GDP numbers. And they say, well, we should be spending X percent of GDP on defense, regardless of what that money is actually being spent on, and regardless of how large the U.S. economy is. Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, look, for, you know, the way you should always be budgeting, regardless you know, whether this is your house or whether this is a government agency or department, really should be, well, what, what are our objectives? What do we need to accomplish? And then figuring out, you know, how much do we actually need to spend to accomplish those objectives? It shouldn't be that, you know, the money is driving the objectives. And I think there are a lot of conservatives who, who levy those critiques as well. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that's, um, that's, the, that's the, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not the current administration sort of has a, uh, you know, presents that, that kind of an argument, but uh, I do think there, like I said, there are there are some you know, causes for optimism. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.